0: You're listening to the Westminster Pulpit, an online ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. For more information, visit us online at www.westpca.com. Let's turn to God's Word, and we're looking tonight at Judges, chapter 1. Judges, chapter 1 beginning a study of this different book. It's not like studying the Gospel of John or Romans. And judges could be divided into three parts, a brief introduction that we'll be looking at this week and next, Lord willing, and then the main body of the book, and then, uh, uh, again, a two-part, a two-fold conclusion to the book at the end. And so we're jumping in, Tonight, and seeking to understand this Old Testament book. Let's hear God's word, Judges chapter 1, at verse 1. After the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord, Who will be the first to go up and fight for us against the Canaanites? The Lord answered, Judah is to go. I have given the land into their hands. Then the men of Judah said to the Simeonites, their brothers, Come up with us into the territory allotted to us to fight against the Canaanites. We in turn will go up, will go with you into yours. So the Simeonites went with them. When Judah attacked, the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hands, and they struck down 10,000 men at Bezek. It was there that they found Adonai Bezek and fought against him, putting to rout the Canaanites and Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled and they chased him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and big toes. Then Adani Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off have picked up scraps under my table. Now God has paid me back for what I did to them. They brought him to, to Jerusalem and he died there. The men of Judah attacked Jerusalem also and took it. They put the city to the sword and set it on fire. After that, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites living in the hill country, the Negev, and the western foothills. They advanced against the Canaanites living in Hebron, formerly called Kiriath Arba, and defeated Sheshai, Ahiman, and Talmai. From there, they advanced against the people living in Debir, formerly called Kiriath Sephir, And Caleb said, I will give my daughter Aksah in marriage to the man who attacks and captures Kiriath-sephir. Othniel, son of Canaz, Caleb's younger brother, took it. So Caleb gave his daughter Aksah to him in marriage. One day when she came to Othniel, she urged him to ask her father for a field. When she got off her donkey, Caleb asked her, what can I do for you? She replied, Do me a special favor. Since you have given me land in the Negev, give me also springs of water. Then Caleb gave her the upper and lower springs. The descendants of Moses' father-in-law, the Kenite, went up from the city of Palms with the men of Judah to live among the people of the desert of Judah in the Negev near Arad. Then the men of Judah went with the Simeonites, their brothers, and attacked the Canaanites living in Zephah, and they totally destroyed the city. Therefore, it was called Hormah. The men of Judah also took Gaza, Ashkelon, and Ekron, each city with its territory. The Lord was with the men of Judah. They took possession of the hill country but they were unable to drive the people from the plains because they had iron chariots. This is God's Word. The book of Judges is strange for us, isn't it? As I read all of that and you heard me trying to stumble through the pronunciation of those names and the geography, it's not like talking about, you know, going over to Philadelphia or uh, the Susquehanna and uh, the Welsh mountains over there. It's just, unless you're a very good student of ancient Israelite uh, geography, the book is strange. It comes across the ages and its stories and its names and its uh, deeds and actions fascinate us and they bewilder us at the same time. And likewise, its theology many times leaves us kind of shaking our head and wondering, what's going on here? Did these people really do what was right? Did God really command this holy war against the Canaanites and the Perizzites? Uh, Were the judges, these leaders that we'll read about in the book and see their exploits uh, described, were they always good? Uh, what is the message of this book? Well, it's not simply a moralizing one. We don't take the book of Judges and say, oh, look at what Samson did. Be like Samson. Or look at what Gideon did. That's how you can get guidance from the Lord too. Or don't be like Abimelech. That's not a right approach to this book. But it's confusing, isn't it? Isn't it much easier to read the Gospel of Luke and get a blessing from a place like that in God's Word. So what are we doing here in this book? Well, we believe it's part of God's inspired holy Word. And it is confusing to us. In fact, if you would go home tonight and in the next few days or sometime this re- week, read through the entire book, which doesn't take very long to read through, and read it to through to the very end, and especially reading the very sad and strange twofold conclusion to the book that's found in chapters 17 to 21. And you read that and you put the book down, you would probably be thinking, unless you have studied this book in depth before, you would be thinking, probably, what did all that just mean that I read? What am I to conclude from this? This uh At the end of the book, this account of a terrible crime and this gruesome message that's sent throughout Israel and this near eradication of the tribe of Benjamin at the end of the book and then this strange patchwork of solutions to get wives for the Benjamite men that are left. You know, it just seems like almost like a science fiction book. What is going on here? It's confusing, yes, but I believe that the meaning in the overarching theme of the book is very clear, and I would summarize the theme this way. So if you do read through the book, try to read it and think about this theme in light of what you read. God is the great Savior of his people, and he saves them even in the face of their depravity and their sin. God is his people's great Savior, and he saves them In spite of themselves. In fact, as we read through this book, you'll see that God's grace is much more tenacious than his people's depravity. Thanks be to God. And he holds his people fast even in their stupidity and in their sinfulness and in their misdeeds. In fact, the miracle of this book is that at the end of the book, there is still an Israel as God's people. That's the miracle of the book. Because in this book, as you see it unfold, and as we go through it in weeks and months to come, we see the spirituality of the nation of Israel steadily decline. And again and again, we see these cycles, we could call them, of God's Judgment. The people turn away, and God brings his discipline. He judges them. And again and again, they cry out to him, but it's not really the true cry of repentance. It's just cry in their distress. And then again and again, God raises up a judge, a savior with a small s. And again and again, the people turn away. And then we finally get to the conclusion, and we see this refrain come at the conclusion of the book, in those days, there was no king. But everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Maybe if you don't know much else about the book, you know that there is that refrain, and you know the book of Judges is about the people did what was right in their own eyes. And many times I think we are reminded about our society, and there's certainly a connection there with a people who have turned away from the living and true God and aren't regarding his word and his law and his grace and are just doing what they want to do and they don't have a good king to rule over them. And this book, probably written in the time after the theocracy had, 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 there was a king given by God, probably a good king on the throne at the time, uh, pointing ahead to the ultimately good king, Jesus Christ, who will rule over his people. But God does not abandon his people. He saves them by his his grace, and his great salvation in this book prefigures and looks ahead to the Savior, capital S, Jesus Christ, who will come. So, Judges is a revelation from God about primarily God. And this evening, here at the beginning of chapter 1, we see things going pretty well for this loose confederation of tribes that is called Israel at this point, point. And we read about a string of uh, military victories over these uh, people groups of the Canaanites and Perizzites. We might call it the second wave of the conquest. Under Joshua, which is the period right preceding this, the nation had the initial conquest of the land, but it wasn't complete. There were still parts of their territories unconquered, and there were still... Uh, these people groups dwelling among them. And so, this is the second wave, so to speak, of to complete the work that had begun under Joshua. And immediately, that raises a question in most of our minds. Why would God command this holy war? Uh, Well, that is a question that the modern mind typically asked at this point, and I'm not going to address that question in depth tonight. We will look at it more over the weeks to come, but the brief answer is this. This was an act of God's justice in which he employed Israel as his instrument. It was an act of God's judgment, his justice, and there is no doubt that the Bible sees it that way. You can read elsewhere. You can look at Deuteronomy 9, for example, Deuteronomy 18. There are other passages as well. There's no doubt that the Bible itself looks at the command by God and and this command executed by Israel carried out as God's justice. Canaanites were a deeply wicked people whose time for judgment had come. And God finally judges them. In fact, if you read back in Genesis 15, you see that uh, part of the reason that Abraham couldn't possess the land yet is that because the inhabitants of the land, their sin was not ripe, so to speak. It was not time for them to be judged yet in Abraham's day. But finally, God judged them. And in fact, this judgment prefigures the ultimate, final judgment of God. Well, that's not an easy subject to us, but it's one that we face in this book and, for, and different aspects of it, the whole, the whole matter of the, the gruesome kind of military battles we find exhibited in the book, and we will speak more about that. But tonight, I want to look at the beginning of this theme of God, God's great salvation, God the Savior, by seeing God's adequacy revealed in chapter 1. That's the theme I briefly want to touch on tonight. God's sufficiency is revealed from the very first verse of this book. After the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord, who will be the first to go up and fight for us against the Canaanites? The Lord answered, Judah is to go. I have given the land into their hands. Here we find a picture, first of all, of God's adequacy. Notice how this adequacy from God is revealed to the tribes as they do God's will here in Judges 1. In in verses 1 and 2, they receive God's guidance, God's direction. God instructs them. Judah is to go up first. Then at the end of verse 2, they have this assurance from God that they receive assurance. I have given the land into their hands. Then if we look down at verse 4, we see that they experience God's power. When Judah attacked, the Lord gave the Canaanites into their hand. We see uh, this strength from God that he fights on their behalf. And then if you look further down to verse 19, the beginning part of that verse, the Lord was with them, was with the men of Judah. They took possession of the hill country. So there are these little uh, sentences, these little phrases that keep reminding us as we read. The author is reminding us of God's adequacy, God's presence, His power at work. And all of the victories that we see in chapter 1 must be seen in that light. There's victories in verses 4 to 7 over Bezek and a victory in verse 8 over Jerusalem, the inhabitants of Jerusalem at that time. Verse 10, Hebron, verses 11 through 15, Debir. Verse 17, Zephath, Hormah, you might call it, it's renamed. And then in verses 18 and 19, the towns on the coastal plain. So all of this string of victories must be seen in light of this theme of God's working. Well, what are the circumstances of this demonstration of God's adequacy here? And the answer is, this is clearly a time of historical crisis. Particularly, the book begins after the death of Joshua, the great leader, the great hero, Joshua, who had led the nation up to this point. He was gone. And yet... The point is, because of the adequacy of God, God's kingdom does not collapse. God is still at work, even when the hero is gone. It's interesting how many books of the Bible begin when the hero dies. Exodus begins with the death of Joseph. Joshua begins with the death of Moses. Judges here begins with the death of Joshua. First Kings begins with the death of David. We could even stretch it out a little bit more and say first Samuel begins with the death of the priest Eli and his sons. Second Samuel, at least in the English bible, that, that's a new book, that begins with the death of Saul and Jonathan, and Second Kings begins with the taking up of Elijah. Uh, it's interesting how many books there are that begin like that. God's presence and power are fully adequate for for his people, whatever the crisis of the moment might be. Think of the psychology of this, you might say. Uh, at this point in Israel's history, they have lost Joshua. As I thought about that, I thought, well, this is like losing George Washington right after the Battle of Trenton. You know, how would, it, how would the Revolutionary War have been different You know, many historians say that if George Washington wouldn't have been there, it wouldn't have taken place. You know, and this time period of the book of Judges is about from the pilgrims coming to now. So here's a book, 21 chapters long. In my Bible, it's 22 pages long. Think if you were given the task, write a quick history of the United States and the spiritual history of the United States in 20 pages or less. What would you pick? So it's very selective, isn't it? But it begins with this phrase after the death of Joshua. This was a, a crisis in the nation's history. And the point here is God is sufficient. He's sufficient for his people corporately, and he's sufficient for his people individually in their own lives. I noticed that today is the final Sunday for Pastor Johnny. Miller at Calvary Church. Maybe some of you know that. He's been there preaching at Calvary Church, the senior pastor there for 10 years, and has had a faithful ministry of God's Word there. And so now, it was his final farewell. Tonight, I think they're having a special service and a farewell to him, and that's always a transition time in the life of a church. And Maybe there are those at the church thinking, well, what's God going to do in our midst now? And I'm sure that they're trusting that the Lord will faithfully raise someone else, uh, else up to preach God's Word. But that's always kind of a hard time in the life of a church. But we all know that God will be sufficient for Calvary Church. God's working isn't dependent on any human being, the best senior pastor. God is not dependent on that senior pastor. We know that. But God will provide. He will be our adequacy. And that's not only true corporately for God's people, that's true for God's people individually. There are different times of crisis in our lives. The death of a loved one or a spouse, the birth of a baby, a divorce, a major health crisis crisis, a job loss. We've had a number of folks go through those in the past year or two, or just a move, or a child starting school, or a teenager becoming rebellious and going through a very difficult time. We could go on and on about crises in people's lives. And and of course, they don't happen all the time, but we probably could say that a minor crisis we could describe as a transition. And all of us are going through transitions regularly, life You know, the hymn says, change and decay in all around I see. O thou who changest not, abide with me. And isn't that true of all of our lives? There's always a transition of some kind going on in our lives. And a time of crisis or a time of transition is a time we are called to refocus our trust in the unchanging God. And that's what we're finding in this book. God is supremely adequate. And God delights to show his sufficiency in our times of crisis, doesn't he? It reminds me of 2 Corinthians chapter 1, which I know is a familiar verse to most of us, where the Apostle Paul is describing a dire crisis in his life. In fact, he describes it in this way. He says, we were under great pressure far beyond our ability to endure so that we despaired even of life. Now, that sounds pretty dire. No one knows exactly what it was Paul was going through there in the province of Asia. And he says, indeed, in our hearts we felt the sentence of death. But then he brings in this point I was trying to just make here. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves but on God who raises the dead. This crisis, God has brought this about. Paul didn't doubt that God was involved in this that he and his companions might be taught more deeply faith in Jesus Christ and in his resurrection power in their lives. Well, I would say that you and I are sometimes in crisis, and we are always in transition. So there's always opportunity to trust the adequacy of God in the transitions and the crises of our lives. For us, Patty and me, we've just had our two younger kids launched or, you know, one relaunched again this summer, one to Florida, one to Texas, uh, both doing different things. And, uh, you know, you see your kids leave and uh, you're praying for them and you hope they make it financially and you hope they make it and uh, in every other way, spiritually, of course, and you're praying for them. It just you know there's parental concern trying you're trying not to let it spill over into worry or for example for in our lives a minor thing you might say but we just read in the newspaper paper a few weeks ago that the farm across the street from our house has been purchased by Mannheim township and is going to be developed into a recreational park with all these football and soccer fields and two Uh, artificial turf fields, and we're pretty sure that the entrance is going to be right at the street next to our house. That's going to be the front entrance to this park. We're thinking, what's this going to do? You know, we're kind of just churning with, oh, should we move somewhere? We like our house. Oh, what should we do? You know, it's an opportunity though. And, And you know, again, in the big scheme of things, very small potatoes, right? But it's an opportunity to rest in the adequacy of God. And so first and foremost, we see this is a picture of God's adequacy for his people. Secondly, though, we we find this point from chapter 1. The unity of God's people is one of the essential conditions for experiencing God's adequacy. The unity of God's people is one of the conditions for experiencing God's adequacy in our lives. Or put it this way, God has willed to give his power and adequacy in the context of his people's unity, their mutual support and encouragement of one another. And that, in fact, is the very instrument through which God often displays his presence and his power and his help through his people's unity. If we look at Chapter 1 again in verse 3. We see that it notes in verse 3, Then the men of Judah said to the Simeonites, their brothers, Come up with us into the territory allotted to us to fight against the Canaanites. We in turn will go with you into yours. So the Simeonites went with them. And then there's another reference in verse 17 to this alliance. It says, The men of Judah went with the Simeonites, their brothers, and attacked the Canaanites living in and they totally destroyed the city. So here we see this alliance between two of the tribes. And interesting, it's between one of the strongest and most important tribes, Judah, and one of the least important tribes, Simeon. And one of the interesting geographical features of their allotment of land from the Lord is that Simeon's land, was, you might say, landlocked in Judah's land. If you were to see it on a map, Judah is a big circle. Simeon is a little one inside of theirs. You know, So they couldn't leave their land without going through Judah in some way. And God grants victory to, in this alliance. We also see an alliance in verse 22 where there's uh, the sons of Joseph's involved. That's the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh. But what we're seeing here is that the people of God need one another. And even those who seem strong need their fellow Christians who may seem weak. It reminds me of 1 Corinthians 12, 21, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, Paul writes, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. You see, what we'll see unfold in this book is the unity of Israel is actually one of the primary concerns of the book. And as the book unfolds, we see a deterioration of the unity of the tribes, of the nation. And one of the key elements of the book's conclusion, as I refer to, is the other tribes allying against the tribe of Benjamin in this justice that they carry out against the tribe of Benjamin. And Benjamin is almost eradicated, one of their own tribes. That's a theme we see kind of unfolding through the book. So the unity of God's people is important in experiencing God's sufficiency, God has linked his adequacy to be, uh, we we might say, uh, given to his people through the instrumentality of one another. Well, two applications of this as we just meditate on this. One is applying it to the crises and the transitions and the needs of our lives. The point of application is this, you and I must seek... Encouragement and help and prayer support from other believers. We should not isolate ourselves. We must be very aware of that. In fact, I read from 2 Corinthians 1. I didn't go on and read what Paul went on to say about the unity in that context. But listen as he describes it in verse 10 of 2 Corinthians 1. He says, God has delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us as you help us by your prayers. So often you see the Apostle Paul insert phrases like that, as you help us by your prayers. He's always enlisting and entreating fellow believers to pray for him. You almost think, oh, Paul, you don't have to have them pray for you. You're the Apostle Paul. Just do it, Paul. You know, don't you ever think that way? You know, what? No. He, he was utterly weak, just like the rest of us are, and he needed his brothers and sisters in Christ. He needed their encouragement. He needed their prayer support. And I like the way he ends that uh, description of that in his, his discussion of their prayer. He says, Then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor granted us in answer to the prayers of many. In other words, this unity... Of prayer support for Paul is going to redound to the glory of God because God is delighted to glorify his name in his people supporting one another and it brings about that result. So, first application was in your crises, in your transitions, in your needs, seek out fellow believers, seek out a friend, a couple of friends, your Bible study group, a prayer partner, to be supporting you in that time of hardship or need, and seek, of course, to be supporting others in those times. But then a second application to that is that even the fundamental spiritual blessing of knowing Christ's love is not to be experienced in isolation. In other words, I'm not talking about crises of our lives, the hardships of our lives. I'm speaking about knowing Jesus Christ Frequently, the Bible speaks about it in terms, corporate terms. Again, in the New Testament, we look at Ephesians chapter 3, where Paul is praying that the Ephesians would experience the love of Christ. And listen to how he prays. He prays, and I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love. He doesn't pray in an individualistic way for them. He prays that corporately, together with all the saints, they would know Christ's love. Yes, we know Christ's love individually. We experience it. But there's a corporate nature to it as well. And tonight is especially important to recognize that and think about that as we take communion, as we fellowship around the Lord's table. This is one of the, the means of grace that God's given us that we would corporately fellowship and experience the love of Jesus Christ. Let's not despise that. Let's not look down at that. What a wonderful opportunity to meet together with the Lord. And so God's amazing adequacy is often to be experienced in the context of his people's unity. Our final point is this. God's amazing adequacy is not merely an abstract truth, but it registers in the details of our lives. God's adequacy comes out in the details of life. Judges is a book full of rich detail. In fact, one of the dangers of reading this book, if you go home this week and read this book, one of the dangers is you get so engrossed and caught up with the storyline itself that it's very easy to miss the forest for the trees. It's not boring at all. In fact, you know, you have to kind of be on tranquilizers to fall asleep reading this book. It won't happen, you know. Um, It's just exciting. And, you know, you're just kind of taken aback at the action. It's it's kind of, you know, too bad Hollywood. I shouldn't say too bad, but I'm glad Hollywood hasn't discovered this book yet. You know, they don't read the Bible, I guess, so they're not going to know it's there. But, you know, it would make one like an R-rated movie, all the violence and everything. But it's got all these details that are intriguing it's really much involved in the detail of life and we even start getting into that chapter one well one of the overarching themes of the book is that God's great salvation uh, is shown to his people even in the midst of their failure and their sin and God's salvation and God's adequacy shows up in the details of people's lives And doesn't that apply to you and me as well in the details of our lives? One of the intriguing vignettes here we read in in verses 11 through 15 is this account of Caleb's daughter, Aksah. And it's just kind of a little glimpse. You don't find out much about it. It's interesting. You don't know if, uh, you know, what Othniel did about Aksah, his fiancée or his wife's desire. Um to ask her father for a field. Um, But she asked her father for this water rights to this spring. I'm not sure what all was involved with that. It just gives us a little bit of a vignette of this marriage that took place because uh, apparently, you know, uh, whoever would capture this one city or town would be given Aksa as his wife, and that unfolds. It's it's an interesting little vignette. And there's also this uh, very interesting vignette, really, probably about the justice of God in verses 5 through 7, about this king, Adonai Bezek, who his thumbs and fingers, his thumbs and big toes are cut off. And he kind of says, well, I guess I deserved it because I had 70 kings picking up the crumbs under my table whose thumbs and big toes I had cut off as well. So, and then you find out that he dies. But interesting details A demonstration of God's judgment in that case. But the point here I'm trying to make is that God's adequacy shows up in the details of his people's lives. The application of that does not mean that his people's lives, the details always go smoothly and always go well. No, but God's grace is repeatedly demonstrated to us in the details of our lives. It kind of reminds me of the book of Ruth, and if you know the introduction to the book of Ruth, you know that the book of Ruth takes place in the days when judges ruled. So the book of Ruth is a neat little look into a family's life at this time in the book of Judges when the big sweep was going on about these judges ruling and doing all these things. But I just love the, some of the details in Ruth and Naomi's lives, that they returned to Bethlehem from Moab, and there's, it's this time of the harvest of, of, of the grain, of a certain kind of grain. And Ruth goes out to glean in a field, and the author of the book of Ruth says she just happened to come to the field of Boaz. And we know that he's going to be the kinsman re- redeemer. Just happened. It was just this circumstance. And we know that it was the hand of God. God's detail, God's adequacy in the details like that of Ruth's life. And for you and for me, it may not be in extraordinary wa- ways. In fact, in fact, that's more rare. But God's adequacy to us, his strength in our weakness, his guiding hand as we look at our lives and pray and seek his guidance, his comforting presence in very difficult times, these gracious mercies of God come in the midst of the ordinary details of your life and of mine. And we must not fail to recognize that. In fact, our trust must be in our God through Jesus Christ and that uh, the fact that he will give us what we need. So as we go out of here this week and as we go back to the mundane uh, elements of our lives, to be trusting that even in the ordinary details of your life and in mine, God is, gives us his grace, and God meets us. And even if it's a time of transition or a time of desperate crisis in your life, we are called to believe God's truth about his sufficiency, his love for us in Christ. And the assurance of God's grace is that he meets us, and he is at work. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not freely give us all things? And we experience that in our everyday lives. That is the assurance that is absolutely certain for every believer. One of the uh, experiences we had in England was getting the London tour. And at one point, uh, the tour guide was dis- describing the statue of Queen Anne and mentioned briefly that Queen Anne had 17 children and only and none of them live past age 5 i just remember being on the tour bus hearing that and thought wow can you imagine 17 all 17 of your children dying before they were 5 years old uh, talk about crisis talk about catastrophe in your life and yet i don't know where queen anne stood with the lord but the christian would have been called to trust the lord even with such tragedy in his or her life. And so my question for you is, have you placed your trust in the adequacy of God revealed in Jesus Christ who came to be the Savior of the world? It may be that your life feels as mixed up or as confused as the nation of Israel that uh, we read about in this book. But remember, this is a book about a great Savior, a Savior who was prefigured to come, Jesus Christ, who came to save his people from their sin, from their own depravity, from their stupidity, from their lack of wisdom, and to raise us up into the very presence of God and to be with us forever. That's the gospel. God with us. Have you trusted in Jesus Christ? Put your hope in such a great Savior. Let us pray. Father, thank you for revealing yourself to us in this book, and thank you that this book points to the greater one who was to come. And thank you that we, from our historical vantage point, can look back and rejoice in such a Savior having come. We come to you now and pray that we would delight in him as we take communion. We pray that our hearts would be lifted up in joyful faith, In such a Savior, Jesus Christ, we ask in his name, amen.